Ladies, I am curious, what do you want to be known for? If you could be the very best in the entire world at one thing, what would it be? Well, this is the Guinness Book of World Records, and I love picking these up at the library and just paging through it because it's crazy the lengths that people will go to be known for something, to be the best at something. There's actually a man who holds the world record for balancing an entire car on the top of his head. He balanced a Mini Cooper on his head. I think if I wanted to be known for something, I would want to be known as an evangelist. I'd want to be known as somebody who is always pointing to Jesus. Who do you think would actually win the world record for that? I think it might be Jonah. Because if you look what happened, he had a 100% success rate, didn't he? He went, he preached, and the whole city repented. That's 120,000 people. Now, oftentimes I get the opportunity to share the gospel. Typically, it's just with one person at a time. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like, what does it feel like for you when you get to share the gospel? I know when I go, my hands like start shaking and my heart is beating like crazy. It feels like a rush of adrenaline. And I actually have a note written in my Bible in the margin and in big bold letters, it says, ask. And I write it there so that I don't chicken out. Because at a certain point, after I've shared some verses, I know that I need to pause and ask that woman, are you ready to confess that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe the work that God has done, pouring all of our sin on him? That he died and took our punishment and God raised him from the dead. And if that one woman that I'm meeting with says that she is ready to accept Jesus as her Lord, then that means I've just watched before my very eyes one woman pass from eternal death to eternal life. And it is so exciting to me that like in that moment, I think I could run a marathon. Like I think I could climb a mountain, right? And that's just one woman. So 120,000 people. I mean, I could probably scale Everest at that point. I'd be so excited. But Jonah's response is very different, isn't it? In chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Jonah, after preaching this message, was greatly displeased, and he became furious. Come on, Jonah, like you just won the world record for the most successful evangelist ever. Can you imagine the guy who balanced the car on his head getting angry after he had just won the world record? Like, man, I did not actually intend to balance that thing on my head. I can't believe that worked. I'm so mad. 
Jonah's mad. And in verse 2, he says, he prayed to the Lord and he says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was yet in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, what he says here is kind of funny to me because Jonah is essentially saying like he knows God so well and that's why he ran away from him. And that's kind of a no-brainer. Like if you know God, you would know that you can't run away from him, right? But we do these sorts of things all the time, don't we, ladies? Sometimes we have all the best knowledge in the world and yet we make a beeline in the opposite direction, I could look up all sorts of healthy meal plans and recipes, but at the end of the day, if my grocery cart leaves the store with more ice cream in it than broccoli, then I'm not living in alignment with that knowledge, am I? My heart and my actions aren't in fellowship with that. So Jonah does know his stuff. He knows a lot about God. We call that theology. Theos means God, and ology means the study of. So theos, theology, is the study of God. Jonah studied God. He knows his stuff, but that doesn't mean that his heart is in fellowship with God. Let's go ahead and give Jonah a little test right now. We'll give it, um, we'll call it Theology 101, and this will be the summer session, and we'll give him a pop quiz. So Jonah makes some statements about God in verse 2, and so he says that God is merciful and gracious. Is that true or false? Is God merciful and gracious? True. Is God slow to anger? True or false? True. Is God abundant in steadfast love? True or false? Does God relent from disaster, true or false? True. That's 100%. Jonah has good theology. He knows who God is. And you did the study this week, so you know that Jonah is actually quoting here a portion of Scripture. He's quoting part of Exodus 34, where the Lord is passing in front of Moses and proclaiming his name to him. But not only his name, also some very precious truths about his character. We call these some of his attributes. He says that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he goes on. But I want you to take a minute and feel those words like they're a balm of reassurance that God is offering to people who had just rebelled against him. Because Exodus 34 comes directly after a train wreck. You see, Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, and after these people had seen God work miraculously through plagues and splitting of the sea and all kinds of wonders, Moses the leader of these people, had been instructed to go up the mountain and talk with God. And so Moses left the Israelites down at the base of the mountain, and they said, you go ahead, Moses. Like, you go up there. We'll be fine down here. Don't worry. We'll obey everything that God has commanded. 
And so he went. And if you're a mom, maybe you cringe a little bit. I know I do on Monday mornings when I leave for work. I'll wake up my kids and I'll say, hey, you know, good morning, time to get up, you know, make sure you do your chore, be kind, all the things that moms say, right, blah, blah, blah. And the kids are like, yeah, mom, we'll be fine, you know, you go to work, have a great day. And I come home a few hours later to who knows what. One day, I came home, and this is no joke, to find my ceiling covered in bright red maraschino cherry juice. They had had an ice cream sundae dance party, and it had ended in a tug of war over the very last cherry in the jar. So what actually happens when mom goes to work? Moses had gone up the mountain and received from God the Ten Commandments. These were two stone tablets that had been carved out of the mountain by the very finger of God. And then he came back down the mountain to find what? A golden calf. Idolatry. They were worshiping the golden calf rather than the God who had just delivered them. They had broken the very commands that they had promised not to. And so what Jonah quotes here in Exodus 34 is directly after this. Moses went back up that same mountain and he received a new copy of the Ten Commandments, but so much more. He received this precious message of who God is. And it feels like a soothing balm on an open wound. Because when God said to him, I'm gracious and merciful, he said it at a time when they had just broken his commands. And do you know what I see in all these attributes of God that he revealed to Moses? I see a desire of God to have fellowship with us. He wants to be with us. He's moving toward us. But Jonah couldn't bear to see his God moving toward his enemies. We see this in verse 3. He says, Now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's been hurt, and this hurt has grown in his heart into hate and and racism. You see, these Ninevites lived in a fortified city with a giant wall surrounding them, and they were probably the most powerful military empire on the earth in their day. And they had a reputation of inflicting not only physical harm, but also psychological terror on their enemies. So just the mention of the name Nineveh would have incited fear and dread in the heart of every Israelite. Because you see, when they attacked, they beheaded the men, they abused the women, they enslaved the children, and they would take all the plunder home. And these Ninevites had sought to destroy God's people on at least three occasions historically. And in fact, it's very likely that one of their attacks was against Jonah's hometown of Gath-Hapur. His 
hurt had become hate. And in verse 4, the Lord asks him, is it right for you to be angry? Now this question implies that not all of our feelings are right. Particularly our anger, we need to check our hearts, right? What makes us angry? What keeps us angry? What do we do when we get angry? You see, there's a difference between the way that God handles anger and the way that Jonah handles anger. Do you see the contrast here? God is slow to anger, whereas Jonah immediately becomes angry. God relents from sending disaster, yet Jonah just becomes infuriated. God and Jonah handle anger very differently. And I'm going to use two different terms to describe the way they handle their anger. I'm going to say that God responds, whereas Jonah reacts. And what do I mean by that? I mean, when Jonah is angry, it's a reaction. It's, it's instantaneous, like a knee jerk. And that sort of anger is driven by these unconscious beliefs, biases, prejudices, the hurt, the racism that's all growing in his heart. I react in anger more often than I'd like to believe. And do you know what I do when I'm angry? I catch myself all the time. I sigh. (sighs) And without even using words, I communicate all kinds of ugly that's growing in my heart. So Jonah reacts in anger. I react in anger. God, on the other hand, doesn't react like that. He responds. And a response comes more slowly. And it's formulated on the entirety of who God is, on all of his attributes. So everything is perfectly balanced. His justice His recognition that sin must be punished is also weighed with his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love and his desire to relent from disaster. But all of this also takes into consideration what is best for us. Oftentimes when there's a disagreement going on in my home, my husband will step in and he models really well responding rather than reacting. And so he'll come in and we're, you know, the rest of us are all quick to to react in our anger, but he'll come in and he'll ask some questions and he'll say, help me understand, why do you feel this way? Or why is this so important to you? And so rather than just reacting to the absurdity going on all around him, he's taking time to dig deeper and formulate a proper response that takes into consideration everyone involved. So if we said to Jonah, Jonah, help us understand why are you angry? He might say that it was because God was moving toward his enemies, the Ninevites, in order to have fellowship with them. God was showing himself to them 
and offering them that same healing balm like he had offered to Jonah's people, the Israelites. And what's worse was that the Ninevites had responded favorably. And that meant that God wasn't going to wipe them off of the face of the earth after all, like Jonah had been hoping. And so he's angry. Was he right to be angry? No. Verse 5 says, Jonah left the city and he found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Now, do you remember how many days Jonah had said it would be before God would send disaster? Forty days. So when Jonah's setting up camp, he's intending to be there for 40 days. A lot can happen in 40 days. So maybe Jonah's thinking after a few days of fasting, these Ninevites might give up and go back to their evil ways. And then God would destroy them. And so Jonah's ready. He's anticipating their failure. And he wants to delight in it. But did you know that there's a different way to camp out and look over a city? Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept for it because they were missing the opportunity to be saved. Jesus says that we should look over a city and we should see a harvest field. He says, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ladies, we need to be more like Jesus and less like Jonah. We need to say, yes, Lord. I know the harvest is plentiful. So send me. I used to live across the street from in elementary school. And so when I would look out the big windows in my living room, I had a full view of the playground. And because at the time we lived there, I was a stay-at-home mom with just little kids at home. That view was really the only city that I could overlook. And so it became my mission field. And it wasn't a nice neighborhood. And so on the weekends and after school, the crowd that would gather there on that playground was a little rough around the edges. And I remember one day, our neighbor boy, Billy, was out at the playground. And Billy had a mouth on him that got him in trouble often. And one day, my husband and I were in the living room talking. And all of a sudden, my husband says, hold on just a second. And he runs out the door. And I look up out those windows just in time to see him take off running across the street. And he jumps and clears the 10-foot chain-link fence and just lands Iron Man style right in between Billy and these two bullies that were beating him up. Now, that rescue mission wasn't evangelistic in nature, but others were. You see, Billy joined us when we would host VBS at that same playground across the street. And every time we went outside to push our kids on the swing, Billy would be there, and we got to talk to him about Jesus. And he would come because he knew that we cared for him. And God cares too, doesn't he? Not only for the lost, but also for his servant Jonah. 
Jonah mentioned that one of God's attributes is his abundant, steadfast love, which we could translate kindness. God knows our needs, and he wants to attend to them. Look how he does this for Jonah. In verse 6, it says, Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Now, did you catch that the immediate purpose of this plant was to rescue Jonah from his trouble? And that word trouble has already appeared in the book. It's the same Hebrew word that was used for the wickedness of the Ninevites in Jonah 1, 2, and 3, 10. So just as God rescued the Ninevites from their trouble or their evil ways, God rescued Jonah from his trouble through the plant. The thing is, Jonah had bigger trouble than just the heat, didn't he? Jonah just wasn't aware of it yet. It's kind of like when you have something stuck in your teeth, you know? You don't know it's there. Would you want me to tell you about it? <laughs> yeah. I remember um, my husband's job interview for the radio station. The manager had taken us out for dinner. And wouldn't you know, the very first bite, my husband gets a huge chunk of lettuce stuck in his teeth. And the whole rest of the night, like he's smiling a ton, right? Because he's trying to make a great impression. And I'm just dying. Like, stop. Like, you've got something in your teeth, right? Jonah's got an issue. And God, in his steadfast love, wasn't going to leave him in his real trouble. He's going to point it out. Verse 7 says, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And we've seen the sovereignty of God over and over again in this book. And in this chapter alone, the verb appointed is used of God three times. He appointed the plant, he appointed the worm, and he appointed the wind. And every time God appointed something, he was working to draw Jonah back into fellowship with himself. But Jonah was miserable. He was so miserable that he wanted to die. Why? Because as much as God was reaching toward him, Jonah was still running away from fellowship with God in his heart. At the beginning of the book, Jonah was running away physically, right? He learned that lesson, and then he went and he obeyed outwardly, and he brought God's message to the Ninevites, and so bam, we should be done, right? No, because outward obedience is never going to be the same thing as true fellowship with God. If Jonah continues to live like this, he's not headed anywhere good. When I was in college, I had 
outward appearance of walking with the Lord. I went to church. I led worship for our campus ministry. I participated in Bible study. But my heart was running away, just like Jonah's was. My heart was so absorbed with my own fame and fortune, and I was actually just using the platform of Christianity for my own personal gain. And do you know what God did? I bet you do because you know who he is. You know that he's abundant and steadfast love, and he relents from showing, um, sending disaster. And so he stopped me dead in my tracks and gave me the opportunity to repent. I got pregnant my junior year in college. I wasn't married. I wasn't ready to have a baby by any stretch of the imagination. But God appointed a baby boy to come into my life and set me straight. And at the time, I, like Jonah, was miserable. I thought it was the worst thing that could have happened to me. But God knew that it was exactly what I needed. Now, you've read to the end of the chapter, so you know that what God is doing here with this plant is actually setting up a teaching lesson, right? Jonah, you care more about plants than you do about people. He says it in verse 10. You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Now, one of the most fascinating parts of this book to me was the way it ends. I mean, it just ends. How many of you got to the end and flipped the page, assuming there had to be more to the story, right? (laughs) What happened to Jonah? We don't know. But we do believe that it's a true story because Jesus himself pointed to Jonah as a historical figure. And even though we don't know what happened for sure, there are a few things that we do know. And that much of the story of Jonah is written from a first-hand account. I mean, his, his prayer from within the belly of the fish. Who else would have been there to know? All of chapter 4 is this private conversation between God and Jonah. And so my thought is, and this is just, this is my own personal opinion, is that sometime after this encounter in chapter 4, that Jonah must have had a change of heart. Because how humble would you have to be to own up to the defiance and the racism and the rage, to own those experiences and to publish them would take a very humble Jonah, a man whose character had changed. But as we leave Jonah here tonight, we leave him in the middle of his testimony. Things aren't resolved yet. Things are blisteringly hot, unsettled. He's still angry, and things are not going the way that he wants. And to top it all off, he's just been called out 
on the selfishness of his own heart. How many of us can relate to that point of the story? And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you don't have a nice bow to tie on your story because you're still living it. Maybe you still have that salad stuck in your teeth and God is pointing it out to you. Maybe you're still in the anger, still making your own plans that you think are better than God. Maybe you're still running away in your heart. Maybe you are in the middle of that train wreck. But the same God who passed before Moses, declaring his name and his attributes, has passed before you through this story. And he's shown you his character through his word, but also through the testimony of the women that you've heard these past few weeks. He's been reaching toward you because he desires to have fellowship with you. And the fellowship that he's offering to you is more complete than it ever was for Moses or for Jonah. Because we have the benefit of living on the other side of the cross. You see, God appointed his son, Jesus, to be the way that we fellowship with God. It is through Jesus that we experience the grace and the mercy of God. It is through Jesus that God's anger toward us is completely removed. It is through Jesus that God has poured out his steadfast love on us. We think we have problems. We think we know what they are. But we have so much stuck in our teeth that God is going to point it out for us. And Jesus has already accomplished the victory to secure our freedom from it. And it's through Jesus that there are no more disasters that can come upon us. Every claim that sin has has been removed. So Jesus is the way to true fellowship with God. I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'd love for you to spend a few minutes finishing up conversation at your groups. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way of true fellowship with you. We thank you that you have shown us your grace, your mercy, your steadfast love. And Father, I just pray, would they be a balm of reassurance on our hearts that we could come to you and we could confess our sins. We don't need to hide. We can't hide. We don't need to run away and we couldn't even if we tried. We can come, show you our sin, confess our sin, confess our anger, confess our, our situations, these train wrecks that we're in, and you know and you see and you forgive. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the cities that you have set before us, that we would be like Jesus looking over them and not like Jonah. Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to run and jump over those fences 
and bring your word to the cities that you've given us. I pray that just as your word came to Jonah, Lord, that it would come to us, that it would fill our hearts, it would fill our mouths, and that we would be eager to share. In Jesus' name, amen.